0: I'll be reading from the book of Galatians. Um, Please stand. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself, but let each one test his own work, and then, res- and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, we are in our 11th week of this um, series on Galatians, which we've titled Fighting for Grace. Today we get to enter the last chapter, which is chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, please open to Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we just got a brand new shipment, four cases of ESV Bibles. That's the one we use. And so there, I believe there are some at the Connect desk if you want to go and grab one. If you don't want to go during this time. Uh, just see me or Tyler or somebody after church and we'll be sure to grab you one if you don't have a Bible um, you, We would encourage you to always bring your Bibles uh, whether they're digital or, or, or um, actual Bibles with pages either way so that you can follow along that's very helpful We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 6 today And this is an interesting and, and, and I would say somewhat confusing and even confounding passage Uh, to many of the commentators and many people who study it uh, because this letter to the churches in Galatia has been um, so perfectly threaded by Paul up to this point. And then he drops these 10 verses in in on us that appear to be just a series of random thoughts, like four or five or six different random thoughts. One commentator even said it's almost as if Every verse or even every subverse, you're cracking open another Bible fortune cookie and you've got another little saying that has, that has nothing to do with anything else and is completely disconnected like little Proverbs. A- and I've heard this passage taught that way. In fact, early on, I taught it that way as well. But in fact, if you remain true to the context of Galatians and true to the context of where this passage falls, which is right after uh, what Justin preached on last week, the fruit of the spirit. If you remain true to that, you realize that these six, these 10 verses are not disconnected at all. In fact, there is a, a logical progression and that there is a thread running through all of these. And here's the context that we have to keep in mind today as we study these verses. The first is the overarching context of the book of Galatians that Paul is fighting for grace against these legalists these Judaizers who would like to come along and say yes Jesus is good in the cross and the resurrection all that is good and grace is even pretty cool but it's Jesus plus the, the law Jesus Jesus plus circumcision Jesus plus the dietary laws and the days and the months of the years and all of that stuff A- and so we need to remember these 10 verses in that context. And then we need to remember these ten verses in the context that we just learned about how a person lives as a spiritual person in the last part of Galatians chapter 5. If you live by the Holy Spirit, you will not engage in the deeds of the flesh, but rather you will manifest fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So really what this passage is, is a polar opposite comparison between the person who lives by the Holy Spirit and per, and the person who lives by the power of self or the person who decides to put their faith in something other than God so Paul gives us this tremendous polar opposite comparison that's what's going on here and how we're going to study this passage today is we are going to define three concepts at the beginning, which are really important to understand this passage in light of. So we're going to spend some time defining these concepts, then we're going to unpack those 10 verses, the text, and then we're going to close with one last point of major application. There's going to be application throughout this message, but there's one last major point that we're going to look at. So let's dive into the first point, which is the three concepts that we want to look at. The first concept that we need to understand is this word transgression. If you look in this passage, the first verse talks about those who are caught in transgression. Well, what is a transgression? What does it mean? Well, in this context, a transgression is anything that misses the target, anything that misses the goal, misses the mark, anything that misses what is actually best for you. Therefore, it's anything that misses what God would have you do or how God would have you live or what God would have you put your faith in. It's anything that misses God. That is a transgression. So a transgression could be a deed of wickedness. It could be sin. So we're all of us, even if you've never been in church before, you, you understand what that is. That would be like adultery or lying or stealing or gossip, all of the classic sins. That is a transgression when we, when we sin. But also transgression is any time that you and I trust or place our faith in anything other than God. So if you and I have decided we're just going to believe in ourselves and in the power of self, that is actually a transgression in God's eyes. Somebody says, I just, I just believe in myself. Well, that misses the mark, believe it or not. You're going to transgress God if you really think that you're the one that has all the power. Uh, you can also uh, believe and have faith in a system. Well, I just trust the system to bring me sustenance to save me to bring me happiness to bring me joy to complete me Okay, or maybe it's an education situation. I'm gonna get this education. I'm gonna get the masters. I'm gonna get the uh, the bachelors I'm gonna get the PhD and I'm gonna place my faith in my education It's interesting. Let me let me tell you something. I, I am all for education. I teach in in a seminary I teach in a in a community college. I am big on education um the whole thing i have also been interested in getting to know people who get their phds and watching how they've worked so hard for this goal for so so long and it is it's hard work and it's a great goal and it's a great accomplishment and then almost always there is a state of depression that follows getting your phd why because they find out that this phd this degree didn't Complete them or satisfy them in some existential way that they thought it would and so there's this depression that results It's placing your faith in education. So that would be a transgression It's placing your faith in a behavior. I like to work out I like to run but if I place my faith in that somehow for my sustenance and my and my existential uh, To relieve my existential angst. It's not going to work Here's one for you Uh, Matt Chandler who's a pastor in in Texas he says that w- a lot of people run into what he called, now this is his term. If you don't like the term, you have a beef with him, but I'm gonna use it. He says we run into this problem a lot. Um, it's called the cul-de-sac of stupidity, okay? Now here it is. Here's, it's the it, what you do is you get into this cul-de-sac and you just keep making left turns and you can never get out. And he says there's three big areas where we run into the cul-de-sac of stupidity. It's the person who believes that somehow their life is gonna be completed if they just accumulate wealth and possessions and stuff. So they spend their whole life just acquiring and building up wealth and saving and investing and, and, and cars and homes and, and, they acquir- and, 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 and they're worth $20 million and now they kind of look around and they go, gosh, twenty million! I, I don't feel completed. I don't feel satisfied. Well, the answer to that problem must be acquiring even more stuff and even more wealth so you work even harder to go out and get more stuff. That's the cul-de-sac of stupidity. You don't realize that maybe those things weren't designed to complete you and satisfy you in that way. Only God can Here's another area. We do this with debt Now I know this is gonna be a little touchy for a few of you and I'm gonna challenge a few of you in a way with this But we get into the cul-de-sac of stupidity with debt as well I'm a pastor and so people come to me and ask me like seemingly random questions quite a bit. T- a couple weeks ago somebody walked up to me and said, "Okay, you're a pastor, Frank. What do you think is the biggest moral challenge facing the United States of America today?" And I can tell you that my opinion is that he thought I was going to say, "Well, obviously it's pornography and the sexualization of our culture." Which I admit is a problem and it's a challenge and it's bad and and we need to do something about it But it's I don't think it's the biggest problem I think the biggest moral challenge in the United States today corporately and individually is our attitude towards debt We are in the cul-de-sac of stupidity when it comes to debt It seems as though every answer except for scripture every answer to the debt with problem is Well, we got to go out and acquire more debt We need to spend more money. The only way to fix our debt is to acquire more debt and spend more money. That's the cul-de-sac of stupidity. It's stupid to think that the very thing that got us into trouble is the thing that's gonna get us out of the trouble. That's why it's called the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Relationships is another area. We just some of us just go from relationship to relationship to relationship, thinking that somehow that will give us existential satisfaction and completion. And we and all we have in our wake is is just a series of broken relationships. By the way, what would be the one common denominator in your series or my series of broken relationships? It's you. It's me. So that's not going to solve the problem either. That's the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Now, uh, hear me on this. I'm not saying that any of this stuff is necessarily bad. Possessions are good. I like nice things. Okay? You like nice things. Possessions are fine. Debt is okay if it's used and managed correctly. Uh, um, uh, Relationships are very good. I would never give up on my relationship with Jackie, my wife. But the minute that we elevate these things in importance above God and start to put our faith and trust in them, that's when it becomes a problem. Uh, uh, Mark Driscoll says it this way. When you take a good thing and make it a God thing, then it becomes a very bad thing. Now, in this context, when we talk about transgression, the transgression that Paul is actually talking about most often is when we place our faith in something other than God, like religion or the law. So we're talking about these Judaizers. Obviously, Paul is saying it's a transgression if you decide to place your faith in the law, okay? The second term we need to know about is pride. Now, verse 3 in this passage is all about pride. It doesn't use the word pride, but it is all about pride. So what is pride? Well, pride is thinking way too much of yourself at the expense of everyone and everything else. It's thinking you're the best, you're the most important, your needs come before everybody else's needs, you don't need anybody else, you are on your own, you are great and important. That is what pride would be. And I would suggest to you that pride is one of the most misunderstood, badly taught, and destructively applied concepts in our culture today. Now, why would I say that? It's because our culture has decided over the last 40 or 50 years to take pride, which the Bible says is a sin, a vice, and we have taken pride and we have turned it into a virtue, while at the same time our culture points to humility, which Scripture says is a virtue, and we say humility is a weakness. And so we've repackaged in our culture. We've repackaged pride. We've given it a a public relations campaign and turned it into something good when it is actually something very, very bad. One speaker says this, the sin of pride has been repackaged by clever marketers and academics into a much needed virtue that is sold to an undiscerning culture. And you know the repackaged words, self-esteem, pride. Self-actualization, pride. Self-image, pride. C.S. Lewis says that pride is the chief sin. C.S. Lewis says it's the pride that caused Adam and Eve to fall from grace in in, in the garden. It's the pride that got Lucifer to fall from grace as well. Pastor Mark Driscoll says that pride is the sin that gets you cuts in line to hell. So if you're figuring out how to get to hell sooner, all you gotta do is go go for pride, okay? Okay it's everybody's first sin it's everyone's besetting sin it's the sin by which all other i can tell you right now even if you don't know me you know something about me my greatest and most besetting sin is my pride i guarantee you it It, it's it's the sin through which every other sin i commit is manifested here's one way to look at it if love is the gateway um to all virtue then pride is the gateway to all sin if love is the gateway to all virtue, pride is the gateway to all sin. And it's interesting, I, as a pastor, again, I have people come to me and confess their sin to me quite often. So they'll come and they'll confess adultery, they'll confess addictions, they'll confess looking at porn, th- th- whatever it is, they'll come and confess it. But in all the years that I've been doing this, I, on less than one hand, I can count the number of times that somebody has made an appointment with me and come in and sat down and said, I need to confess to you the sin of my pride. It just doesn't happen because we don't think it's a sin. We don't think it's that big of a problem, but God says it's a huge problem. By the way, let me tell you, those few times that somebody has confessed that sin to me, number one, it was really hard. It was really challenging. It's hard to look somebody in the eye and say, my problem is me. It's really hard to do that. It's humbling, but I will also tell you those times were some of the most rewarding times of incredible spiritual growth that I was ever able to be a part of with those people There was relief there was release there was love there was joy there was compassion There was incredible spiritual growth during those times of confessing pride Now here's what God has to say about pride and it's not pretty There is no wiggle room in what God and this is just a small sample of it Here you go in Proverbs eight thirteen, God says he Hates pride, and he detests arrogance. He hates pride. Hates. Okay, now, somebody said, well, what is that Hebrew word that we translate as hate? What does it really mean in Hebrew? It means hates. He hates it, okay? There's no wiggle room here, okay? Proverbs 16:5. Everyone who is arrogant and prideful is an abomination to the Lord. They're repugnant. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Not go unpunished. God is serious about pride. And I know somebody, well, that's that Old Testament God. He's really angry and he's looking out. Okay, here you go. New Testament, James 4.4, 4, 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes, the, he stands in opposition to those who are prideful. So we got hate, we got punished, we got opposes. Here's one more, because I know you're so excited about this. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. So here you go. God's plan A is humility. His plan A is for us to have humility. His plan B is humiliation. Let me get personal here. My greatest times of humiliation, embarrassment, and just feeling awful have always come in the wake of me being prideful they just have my greatest humiliation has always come as a result of my sin in pride pride and you gotta know something pride is so deceptive it is so deceptive um one of ben franklin's uh, biographers actually wrote about once about how ben franklin was working on the virtue of humility and he got so good at humility that he actually became proud about how humble he was d.l. moody tells a great story about Um, they they had a guy in their little group that was just filled with pride and so they got together and they said let's put him through an exercise that will let him taste a little bit of humiliation and that way maybe it'll knock him down a little bit and help him deal with his pride so they said here's what we want you to do we want you to go down down uh, in in downtown Chicago like state in Washington okay where there's all kinds of people all day long and for eight hours we want you to wear a sandwich board that says that everybody's going to hell you're sinners and God hates you and 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 preach a hellfire and damnation gospel become a sandwich board, bullhorn Christian in the middle of downtown Chicago for eight hours. That would be kind of humiliating. Okay. So this guy actually went and did it. And then they all got together afterwards and they debriefed and they went to this guy and they said, well, how was it? And he said, it was really, it was really hard. It was rough. In fact, I don't think there's anybody else who could have done what I just did. (laughs) So it didn't really work, but, but that's pride. Okay. Now, ultimately pride is just rejecting Christ." It's saying I, I'm good enough that I don't need Jesus. I, I don't need his way. I don't need his grace Okay, so that's pride. So we've done transgression and pride now sowing, The last concept we need to know is sowing. We're not talking about a needle pulling thread Instead we're talking about this in an agricultural context Okay, uh, uh, sowing literally means to plant or to scatter seed and of course if you if you plant corn seeds you're going to get corn. If you plant wheat you're going to get wheat. You never plant an apple seed and expect that an orange tree is going to come up. Well this is why this metaphor works for Paul in this passage. It's it's in verses 7 through 10 where he talks about sowing. He, and the idea is that if you plant something it means that you are committing to something if you are sowing into some area of your life it means you're leaning into it you're living for it and that you're planning on a return a harvest in fact so sowing in this passage literally means to live for to commit to or to behave as a result of that's what sowing means now we get to go to the text we have those three terms defined we're going to go to the text and it's ten verses and we got to remember the context fighting for grace against the legalists and living by the spirit living as a spiritual person and this this uh, text actually splits into three kind of major areas verses 1 through 5 are about bearing and you'll see what I mean in a second by using that word verse 6 is about sharing and then verses 7 through 10 are about sewing okay I couldn't find a synonym for sewing that rhymed with caring and sharing so that's the best I could do. So look at verse 1 in chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, there's that word, any way that's circumventing God, that's missing God, you who are spiritual, you who are living by the fruit of the Spirit, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Okay, so again, we got to understand this in context. Fighting for uh grace against legalism and living by the spirit if you're caught in a transgression there's some debate about what that means does it mean literally you caught somebody red-handed you know y- you saw them going into the hotel with the wrong person you, you walked into the room and they had the wrong website up y- you looked at their expense report and there's a there's a glaring uh example of them ripping you off that's caught red-handed that could be what it is yes but it's also, and probably more likely in this situation, it's somebody who's trapped or ensnared or hindered by some transgression that they're living in. So it's it's the idea that Hebrews might bring about. So let us throw off every sin or transgression that hinders us from being able to run the race that God has mapped out for us. So, it's, so really, I- I- if you find somebody who's trapped by their transgression trapped by the fact that they're missing the mark you need to uh... restore them so it could be a sin it often is it could just be adultery or whatever it is an an addiction it could also be this transgression could also be somebody who is who is falling for the law so the gentiles falling for the idea that they need to be circumcised and follow the law in today's context uh... there's a guy named larry uh, osborne he's a pastor in san diego about 12 years ago, he wrote a great book called The Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. And in that book, he talks about what are what are known as, what he calls, gold-plated Christians. So here's what a gold-plated Christian is. It's somebody who has come to Christ and understands who Jesus is, but like the Judaizers, they become legalists and they begin to add a list of rules and regulations and and laws that they have to follow in order to be a better Christian that have nothing to do with the Bible. So like early on when I was a Christian, I kinda toyed with being a gold-plated Christian. I had a bunch of rules and laws in my life that I thought would help me be a better Christian. But here's the biggest problem, then I would go out and try to inflict these rules and laws and lists on everybody else. They work for me, they must work for you. Well, where are they in Scripture? Well, they're nowhere in Scripture, but you should do it anyway, okay? That's a gold-plated Christian. That's a problem. That is a transgression, so we need to understand that. So this idea of, of being caught in a transgression applies to both sin and legalism, and those who are spiritual should restore the person in a spirit of gentleness. Now, understand, it does not say that we should restore the person in a spirit of Tolerance. There there is a problem in, in many Christian churches today where we just tolerate sin and think that somehow that will be a ministry of restoration to the person, and it's really not. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer deals with this. He says this, Christians must confront one another in sin because nothing can be more cruel than the tolerance that consigns someone to his or her sin. In other words, it's an act of cruelty if you, as, you and I as Christ followers look at a brother or sister in sin and we say, uh, that's okay, you'll figure it out eventually. I don't want to appear too judgmental. I don't want to get messed up in your life that way. That's actually an act of cruelty to not help guide them back onto God's path. But here's the challenge. We need to do that with gentleness, okay? Some of you in the eight weeks I've been here have already discerned that I'm kind of an intense person, Okay? early on in my ministry trying to by the way ministry meaning as a christian not working for a church i ministered long before i ever worked for a church and you should too if you're a christ follower but early on in my ministry when i would confront people in sin i really struggled with that gentleness thing and and that's why paul says you who are spiritual you who are living by the spirit that's really the only way you can do this is if you do it by the spirit i was having a conversation with sean johnson our worship leader couple weeks ago about this passage. And he said, isn't it possible Frank that that word gentleness is really just representative of the entire fruit of the spirit? And I thought, wow that's, I think he's right. And and we kind of worked through that. We said, can you restore somebody gently but do it without patience? Can you restore somebody gently but do it unlovingly? Can you restore somebody gently but do it without joy or without self-control or without faithfulness and the answer would be no so really what we think Paul is doing here is he's using that word gentleness to represent the fact that all of the fruit should be represented when you are restoring somebody so that's pretty hard to do I understand that we have to seek that balance but that's why Paul continually points to the spirit in us and not our own power we're not smart enough to do this we have to have the spirit of God in us to be able to do this And that that word restore literally means to mend, uh, to mend or to let me let me see my notes here to prepare to mend or to put back together. It literally means to mend, repair, or to put back together. So when you're mending something, or repairing something, or putting it back together, is it always an easy and painless process? As as Justin said last week, let me quote him, don't overthink that. The answer would be no, it's not always very easy to do that. Um, four years ago, a little more, more than four years ago, I had knee surgery. I'm a runner, I'm pretty active. It was really, I, I was devastated by this. But I had knee surgery in order to repair and mend and restore what was going on in my knee so that I could continue to run and get back to running. But was that, was that process easy or painless? No, surgery was painful, and it was challenging. Not only painful physically, but with the insurance and everything, it was a challenge. And, the, and, then, and then after surgery came this thing called physical therapy. How many of you have ever been in post-surgery physical therapy? Yeah, that's tough, it's hard, but I will tell you, I'm a big believer in physical therapy, but it was painful and it was challenging, but it was worth it. My knee is fully restored. In fact, this knee is better than this n- knee now. I'm kind of thinking about screwing up this knee so I can have surgery on it, so it can be as good as my my repaired knee. But it was hard. It was really difficult to be able to do. And then Paul says, all right, in this process you need to keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Well, how can you be tempted in this process? Well, there are a couple of ways when restoring somebody that you can be tempted. The first way is that you might be attracted to the sin or a sin in the midst of that restoration process. Here's an example. I I see this all the time guys have a problem with pornography they'll get somebody to help them with that problem to help try to restore them and rather than them being restored the person who's supposed to be ministering to them and helping them ends up falling into the trap of pornography. So rather than pulling them out you get sucked in That, that can happen um i i was told after the first service this story this is interesting i wasn't aware this had happened it, it might be interesting to look up but after 9 11 uh, a lot of firefighters in new york died there was one particular subway where there are a number of firefighters uh, that had died were from so firefighters from another community decided to go over and start to minister to these widows and to help restore them and to help mend them and help repair them And it's amazing, apparently, how many of these guys ended up leaving their wives and their families and getting married to these widows. So be careful when you're in a ministry of restoration, lest you be tempted. That can be one way that you get tempted. But the second way is that you can become prideful in your restoration ministry. And that's what verse 3 is all about. Why prideful in your restoration ministry? Two ways. Number one, you can look at the person who's in sin and you can say, look at this poor soul. I would never do that. I'm not dumb enough to fall into that. In fact, this person needs me to come alongside of them to help them look at me. And it can become a source of pride. But the second way you can become prideful in your restoration ministry is when somebody is trapped in legalism, you can come alongside of them and you can say, I have the truth of the gospel and you can become arrogant in your truth. You you can take the hammer of truth and start beating people over the head with it. And that's a problem. Again early on in my Christian my Christian life. This is going back 27 years now very early on I was one of those gold-plated Christians and, and I had somebody do this to me I was in a large group of about 25 people and I was talking about how I had this one rule in my life Which I thought was very helpful. It wasn't biblical But it was this rule in my life that I thought was was helpful to me And I thought everybody else could benefit from my suggestion of them living by it, too Well, there was a guy there who Rather than in in a spirit of gentleness taking me aside afterwards and saying, hey, let me point this out to you and where you might be wrong about this. Instead, just in front of everybody, he said, I just got to tell you, that's stupid. You're just stupid and you need to just quit talking now, okay? I felt so restored, (laughs) so blessed. But he was arrogant about it. He had the truth. I'm not disputing that he was correct. He had the truth. But he took it as a hammer and just beat me over the head with it. Okay, that's, that's, that's a real problem. So, rather than being tempted ourselves, we should do as verse 2 says, we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, we need to understand this again in, in light of, verse, of chapter 5. Chapter 5, the first 15 verses were all about how we are now free to love others And then verses uh, 16 through 26 are all about living by the fruit of the spirit living with the spirit in us filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers us so that's how we bear each other's burdens by love and by the power of the spirit. That's how we take care of each other. That's how we protect each other. That's how we fulfill each other's needs. That's how we restore and correct each other. That's how we fulfill the law of Christ, which is actually love. The law of Christ is love. That's how we quarantine selfishness and now are able to replace it with love. And that leads us to verse 3 where we get that pride thing. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So we've talked about that's pride. That's Paul talking of pride and we're talking about how prideful we can get sometimes when we're ministering to others. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying listen, don't think you're something when you're really nothing. What he's saying is you by yourself apart from being spiritual apart from the love of Christ and the Holy Spirit in you, apart from that, you're nothing. So don't start going around thinking you're something when it's really not you, but rather it is Christ in you. The only way you and I are actually something is because of Christ in us. We bring nothing to the party. And that leads us to kind of a weird verse. Verse 4, this is one of those ones that is seemingly randomly just dropped in here. Uh, Verse 4 says this, But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor This verse is actually a slam against the Judaizers. It's a slam against the legalists the Judaizers in Galatia Wanted to be able to sign up the the Gentile Christians for circumcision and then look around at everybody and go look I got me another one and so they're boasting in their neighbor that they were notch in the belt kind of guys i got me another one there's another notch in my belt have you ever been around somebody like this somebody who appears to be trying to help you but in reality what they're doing is they're trying to feather their own nest by getting you to follow them they're trying to get you to fulfill their agenda by getting you to follow them that can be a problem well that's what the judaizers were doing but this is also a warning to remember who is really doing the ministry in you when Paul talks about boasting in yourself, he's usually talking about boasting in Christ in you pointing at Christ in you. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, he writes, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then verse 5. Verse 5 says, For each will have to bear his own load. Now, if you put verse 2 and verse 5 next to each other, they look like they're contradicting each other, Right? This is one of the reasons why people say this this passage is so random and it doesn't make any sense But in fact, there is no contradiction between verse 2 and verse 5 And here's why The word in verse 2 that we translate as burden is actually the word for need So we should bear one another's needs, whatever they are Physical needs, financial needs, uh, emotional needs, spiritual needs But the word for load in verse 5 is consequence So like the consequence of your sin the consequence of your transgression so here's what here's what um, commentators say they say in the body of Christ in the church we have both mutuals at, at the same time simultaneously going on we have mutual accountability but we also have personal responsibility so in the church we must understand at the same time you and I are account mutually accountable to each other, but we're also personally responsible for our own sin, before God. We bear each other's needs, but we bear our own consequences of sin. Scott McKnight says it this way. The issue is not contradictory, but rather two sides of the same coin. Christians must help one another with the struggles of life, but each Christian will also have to answer to God individually for their sin, either by themselves or through Christ on the cross so that's the bearing section of the passage now we go to the sharing section which is just verse 6 Paul says let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches more than any other verse in this passage this one seems the most random and it benefits the most from understanding it in context it seems like it doesn't belong here but it really does if you understand it in context here's what I mean most people will come to this ver- verse and they will teach it this way Pay your pastors you should be paying your pastors when you, you see those little giving boxes back there You should be dumping checks and money in there because you got to pay your pastors and it's all about financial con- Compensation for example FF F. Bruce even says this the teacher fills the pupil with spiritual insight from the scriptures uh um uh, the pupil that should then relieve the teacher from concern for his substance. And it's true. Scripture says you should pay the pastors. But financial compensation is not the focus of this verse in this context. Here's what's going on. Paul had left the churches in Galatia, but that did not mean that there weren't people there still teaching grace and teaching the gospel who were gospel-centered and outward-focused. There were still people there teaching and preaching grace. There were still people there living out the gospel. They were bearing one another's burdens, and they were sharing. There were people doing it in humility and by the power of the Spirit. But these were the same people who were getting pounded by the Judaizers. The Judaizers were coming along and telling them that they were wrong. They were marginalizing them. They were beating them up. And so these these people who were teaching grace were getting beat up. They were getting worn out. And they were getting discouraged. So Paul says, you should share all good things with those who teach the truth. Well, think about this. Encouragement is good. Prayer is good. Rest is good. Community is good a cup of coffee is good I would suggest that donuts are good okay now now here you go it's true I, I, I have bills to pay I couldn't do this if, if I weren't being paid okay? I have bills to pay a family to support the Shawn's both of them same deal Tyler okay we do need financial sustenance but let me tell you the rewards of ministry come from all good things I will tell you what truly sustains us are your prayers do you pray for us we covet your prayers your encouragement your thoughtfulness your cards uh, your your community your affirmation and yes your coffee and donuts are included in that as well but those are the things that truly we covenant and and this is what paul is saying here and so we move beyond now Bearing and sharing and now we go to sowing which is in verse 7 Paul says do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap Literally that word in there for deceived is do not deceive yourself. Don't be a self deceiver Do any of you realize the easiest person in the world to deceive is yourself? The easiest person in the world to lie to is yourself. I am a, I have a PhD in deceiving myself, in lying to myself. I am really good at it. I can manipulate myself so easily to believe the stupidest things. I'm really good at that. Okay? And when it comes to mocking God, that's the area where we are most proficient at self-deception we really believe that he won't notice we really believe that he won't do anything about it and we really believe that we have it all figured out better than god and that we should do it our way and not god's way at least that's what we tell ourselves so what does it mean to mock god it means to sow to the flesh it means to sow to yourself or sow to anything else live into anything else apart from god and so we mock God when we live a life of sin when you commit a sin you're mocking God but it also means that you commit a sin time that we choose a worldview a philosophy a moral system or the law over him that is mocking God as well and literally the Greek word that we translate as mock it literally means to turn your nose up at God to thumb your nose at God that's what it literally means so again in context sin mocks God But Paul also says that following the Judaizers, following the legalists would also mock God. Don't do it. Anytime you trust in your own effort, your own goodness, your own smartness, your own wisdom, whatever it is that's your own, you're turning your nose up at God. We mock God with any idea that anything apart from God is going to sustain us, satisfy us, and satisfy our existential angst. Anything. So from Oprah to Chopra, it all mocks God. I got that one off the internet for you, so and then verse 8 For the one who sows to his own flesh So the one who lives for anything other than God Will from the flesh reap corruption That word corruption literally means death, destruction, and condemnation So if you decide that you're going to do it a different way from God That's what you're going to, re- that's the harvest that you're going to reap But the one who sows to the spirit The one who lives by the freedom of grace to be able to love others and who lives by the Holy Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's enough said about verse 8 because that's pretty self-explanatory. And then verses 9 and 10. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. We will have a harvest if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Paul says if, that if you do so to the Spirit, you will do good. Now, his poor grammar aside, you get what he's trying to say here. And again, in context, to do good to everyone literally means to live as gospelers. To live as people who are going to spread the gospel in both word and deed. First John chapter 3 says that we should live as gospelers, we should spread the gospels both in word and deed. So then right away, somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute, I thought works weren't a part of salvation. They're not. Paul is not requiring works or deeds for salvation. But understand this. If you are in Christ, as Paul says, and living by the Spirit, works are not mandatory, works are not required, but works are inevitable. You won't be able to help yourself. You will go out and do good to other people. But that also means that we're going to be candidates for getting weary. And that's that closing application I want to hit. Ministry can be very wearying. It can be tiring. And when I talk about doing ministry, I'm talking about anybody who is a Christ follower because we're all called to do ministry. So in what ways might we grow weary from doing ministry? In what ways might we grow weary from doing good? Well... Have you ever been somebody who does have a ministry of confronting sin and transgression? I I know you're not digging ditches. I know you're not moving around bricks and stuff doing physically exhausting labor, but let me tell you something. That is emotionally and spiritually exhausting work to confront people in transgression. Coming out of an hour-long discussion about that can be one of the most exhausting things that you'll ever feel. So, restoring Mending, repairing broken broken people, that can cause us to grow weary. Fighting for grace against legalists can cause us to grow weary. The time demands of ministry and the idea that you might have to say no to really good things because you have way too many very important things to be doing, that can be uh, something that's wearying. If you're a Christian living as a Christian living as a spiritual person in the marketplace where darkness pervades that can be tiring and wearying and then there's just the what 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 one person calls the relentless nature of ministry ministry never ends if you're a Christ follower and you're involved in ministry you know that ministry never ends it just keeps coming it is relentless there's never a time when you get to the end of the week and you say that's it my work is done and the world is good you never get to that point it is relentless a good example of this i'm I'm involved in prison ministry as i've said before let me tell you something prison ministry is relentless there is always something to do always something that someone needs there is always There are always more people to write, more people to visit, more sermons to preach. It's the same with if you're ministering to married people. It's the same way, there's just just this relentless nature. Now, here's the trick. This is what I want you to get out of this idea of growing weary and why Paul talks about this here. It is very often that, 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 that we just allow this weariness that we get from being ministers to lead us into bitterness, resentment, frustration and anger and Paul wants to prevent us from doing that instead of leading the t- how we get tired from in, in, in the midst of ministry instead of leading us to resentment bitterness anger and frustration rather it should lead us to prayer when Jesus got tired what did he do he went and prayed okay it, it should lead us to compassion okay Looking out at all the ministry needs there are in this world, it should lead us to compassion. Uh, By looking at the world and saying, man, it is really screwed up. And so we should have a sense of compassion for that, not a sense of bitterness or resentment. Jesus had a sense of compassion for the world, not a sense of bitterness or resentment for it. It should lead us to better time management. There are times when you're going to have to say no to really good things. You are because you're doing really important things. It should lead us to the Sabbath. Are you taking your Sabbath? Are you resting? And it should lead us to community because community can be very restorative. Community can help us to, to uh, heal our weariness. Now, let me, let me say something about this term community because community means something different to all of us. It's like the word freedom. We all have a different interpretation of it. I'll tell you what community means for me. I'm not in trying to inflict it on you, But when i say that community helps me in my weariness what i'm talking about is first and foremost having community with my wife that restores me then to some extent my children my family my kids that community and then from there community with my friends i can tell you that community with friends is not as restorative as it could be if i haven't first had community with my family that's where i got to take care of it first but also it's helpful to remember that ministry can also restore us and help us from becoming tired. I know that sounds weird, but I have this happen to me all the time, and I've heard many of you say the same thing. When you actually go and serve other people, you walk away from that very often going, I don't understand it. I worked like a dog. I worked really hard. I'm really tired, but I feel like I've been restored by doing that ministry. In fact, doing that ministry, in some way administered to me. I received something bad. I'm like this again with the prison ministry it's hard and time-consuming to drive down to Florence to go to Tucson to go to Buckeye to go to these places and minister to these guys and visit these guys and preach to these guys and mentor to these guys it's hard and it costs money and there's really no uh, tangible return on my investment but here's what's odd about it. I'll go and visit these guys, and I'll come away from that. All of that time, effort, and trouble, I'll come away from that, and I'll go, I don't know how it happened, but I spent an hour with that guy, a prisoner, and he ministered to me more than I feel like I ministered to him. That's just the way it happens. You get involved in marriage ministry. It happens there, too. It's hard work to minister to married people who are struggling in their marriages, but very often you come away from it thinking, "I, I really feel ministered to. It's the same way with children's ministry. If any ministry is going to be relentless, it's going to be children's ministry. I admit that. But many people come away from that ministry saying, this is really good. It's ministering to me as much as I'm ministering to them. And then we can have what's called a good tired. It's not that we're not going to get tired. We're going to get tired, but we can have a good tired. Two or three weekends ago, just because of the way the schedule got manipulated and changed and something got canceled and then put back on the schedule, I had a very challenging weekend. I had two major speaking engagements on Friday, both big and difficult and challenging, plus a wedding rehearsal in between those two. Saturday, I've done almost 100 weddings in my career. I had probably the biggest wedding I have ever done in my life. It was unbelievable. A lot of pressure, a lot of stress, and then Sunday morning I came in here and preached twice. Let me tell you something, by Sunday afternoon I was pooped, but it was a good pooped. It was a good pooped. I looked back and I said, there was a lot that happened and a lot of it really ministered to me even as I was ministering to other people. And I tell you this, the reason I tell you this is because I've said this already a number of times. just because I'm the guy paid by the church doesn't mean I'm the only one who ministers. If you're a follower of Christ, you're supposed to be ministering. Uh, I ministered to others well before I ever started collecting a paycheck from a church. And in fact, here you go. This idea that somehow Tyler and me and the Shans were special because we're we're the clergy and you're the laity—that is the worst thing that the church has ever done. To The body of Christ is to make this artificial differentiation between those two because there is none. Scripture teaches the priesthood of all believers. We are all ministers. My context just happens to be here. Your context happens to be out in the marketplace. And in fact, there's a level of, of envy that some of us on staff actually have for those of you who are in the marketplace, who are living as gospelers in this dark world. That's an advantage. By the way, that's one of the reasons why I teach at at Paradise Valley Community College. I teach communication as an adjunct instructor at PVCC because I get to live in the marketplace as a gospeler teaching communication but developing relationships with these students and eventually they learn that they can trust me and they can come to me with more than just questions about human communication theory. Living as a gospel or in the world. That is an awesome thing. It can be very wearying, but it should be a good tired that you're experiencing. So here you go. Let me just close by recapping this passage. These 10 verses seem so random, but when you put them into context the context of fighting for grace against legalism and the context of living by the Holy Spirit and manifesting the the fruit of the Spirit, you can now see how these verses just cascade that there is this thread that goes through all of them and that Paul very purposefully wrote this section of the letter this way and that it was building on each other. So you go from caring and burden-bearing to sharing to now sowing how you're going to live. So you can see how it's all wrapped up together and next week we get to wrap up this entire magnificent letter We're going to look at the last eight verses verses 11 through 18 Let's pray together and then Sean and the band will come up and lead us into our time of reflection Holy and gracious God. We thank you for the truth of your word and the boldness with which it is written We thank you for the Holy Spirit leading Paul to write it as he has and God we thank you for the privilege of and the responsibility of teaching it and studying it today and understanding it. Give us, please, the courage and the power to live by it now. God, we ask this in Jesus' name, and it's by your spirit that we come to you. And all of God's people said, amen. Thanks, Frank. Well, we have the the privilege, the opportunity to respond.